This episode of Dear Hank and John is brought to you by Blue Land. Did you know that uh, about 5 billion, billion? That's a de- I checked that because that's a lot. Plastic hand soap and cleaning bottles are thrown away every year. And if that's not bad enough, most cleaning formulas are 90% water, which is heavy. We're shipping around all this water using fuel when we don't have to. Every year, Americans throw away 25% more trash from Thanksgiving to New Year. This year, maybe turn the New Year's resolution into action that makes a difference by switching to Blue Land. Blue Land is on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic by reinventing cleaning essentials to be better for you and the planet with the same powerful clean you're used to. It's a simple idea. They have refillable cleaning products. They have a nice design. I have them in my home. It looks nice on your counter. You fill the reusable bottles with water, drop in the Blue Land tablets, wait for them to dissolve, and you never have to grab bulky, heavy cleaning supplies on your grocery run ever again. And refills, because they're small and you don't have to ship a bunch of water across the country, starts at just $2.25. You can even set up a subscription or buy in bulk for additional savings. From cleaning sprays to hand soap, toilet bowl cleaner, and laundry tablets, Laundry tablets, everybody, you know what I mean. All Blue Land products are made with clean ingredients that you can feel good about. Blue Land is trusted in over a million homes, including, yeah, mine. Blue Land has a special offer for listeners right now. You can get 15% off your first order by going to blueland.com slash dearhank. You won't want to miss it. Blueland.com slash dearhank for 15% off. Again, blueland.com slash dearhank to get 15% off. Dear Hank and John. Or as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a podcast where two brothers answer your questions, give you dubious advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. John, what do Christmas and a cat in the desert have in common? I don't know. Sandy Claus? No. (laughs) No. First off... (laughs) First off, we're uh-huh. recording this as a bonus episode that's not supposed to be seasonal. Oh, right. Oh, right. I forgot. Secondly, I'm if you're that going... No. <laughs> I forgot about that. If you're going to make it seasonal, uh-huh. make the joke good. I love that joke. It's one of my favorites. I think I've used Sandy it before Claus? on Sandy Claus. Anyway, Sandy Claus? John, what, yeah. which dog? No, no, no. I didn't mean, I did not mean I want a second joke. <laughs> which dog is always going to win the race? Uh, which one? It's the one with the most comfortable lead. No. No. Because that's what they no. call leashes in England. <laughs> I refuse to, I, I get the joke. I refuse to accept it. <laughs> Okay. Right. Well, I have received. Well, then now I can use the the Sandy Claus joke when we record for actual Christmas time. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. No, I can can save it. It's my favorite joke. One of my favorites. I I don't accept that. And and uh, and why did the cowboy get a dachshund? Hank, the the solution to having because he wanted to get a long little doggy. I do like that joke, but I, you've told it to me 500 times. I know. Which, it's so good. It, oh. It's not that good, man. It's just as good as the moth. And I've heard the moth more than you've heard. the long, And also the moth is way longer than the long doggy. It is 
nowhere near as good as like what is the metaphorical resonance of the get along little doggy no, joke none. what is the part of it where we have to grapple with the reality that so much of our lives is spent flying toward a light that we neither understand it's the exact nor same consider thing. it's because we make decisions not based on what we actually want but based on what society expects of us which is that cowboys get along little doggy I'm sorry, man. But, it works. And, and I say I say this as somebody who makes metaphorical reaches for a living. That is a reach. <laughs> yeah. And then he's like, why do I have this dog? It's terrible for cowboy stuff. It does nothing that, good. I love that you've taken our timeless, who knows when it will come out bonus episode and somehow managed to insert Three dad jokes. Yeah, well, this is what the people want, John. And and especially it's what they want when we had something go wrong and so we couldn't record an episode of the podcast. And so we had to use, we had to dig into the archive and pick out this one, which we might not even ever release because maybe things will go perfectly forever. Let me just go ahead and release some time-specific AFC Wimbledon news just now <laughs> while we were recording this, while I was oh, listening to those jokes. Okay. AFC Wimbledon drew their third-round FA Cup opponent. It could have been Arsenal. It could have been ah. Manchester City. It could have been Liverpool. Instead, it's Boreham Wood. Yeah, I, I was going to I was gonna go with Trip Basin. <laughs> <laughs> Let's make up. Let's make up some, some potential English place names that could be fifth or sixth uh-huh. tier English soccer teams. Trip Basin sure. is good. What about um, what about Ipsmouth Quarantine? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Ipsmouth Quarantine FC, uh-huh. the Wanderers. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to go with Hardmouth Bramble Through, uh, and theirs is theirs is uh, they 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 play as. The 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 fighting bees. There's of course the Smash Mouth FC All Stars. <laughs> now this is the thing I think we could make happen, John. Um, what about Broad Tooth United? <laughs> I want a song for Broad Tooth United, like uh, like. They're they're better on the pitch, but they don't have, but they can't bite as hard as these. We're broad tooth united. Um, We've got higher SATs. They don't have SATs there. Aren't they the fighting bees? I mean, you've just got your own. We're broad tooth united. England's fighting bees. Yeah. Okay. The truth is, I don't think we're going to do better than Broad Teeth F- FC. No, Hank, what about, I, think. I got one. What about, okay. what about, let's, I'll see, I'm going to say the first part and you say the second word. The Great. first name of this football team is Nipple Switch. Sure, yeah, the the, the Nipple Switch <laughs> town marauders. <laughs> Why does it sound right? It sounds right. I. It would not surprise me in the least if there's a team somewhere in the seventh tier that's the nipple switch town marauders and you know 
they've got their own culture. You know, they got like uh, 25 season ticket holders. Yeah. And for those 25 people, being a nipple switch town marauder <laughs> supporter is at the center of their identity. It's a really big. It's who they are. Yeah, it's a really big and deal I, for I, them. I, like, yeah. And for the town of nipple switch, of course, it's amazing <laughs> to have a football team. You know? Yeah. How else are we gonna? How else are we gonna get through this this uh, cold hard life, John? Uh, I don't know why we decided to make our best episode the bonus episode. <laughs> Sorry, it's all downhill from here, friends. As as good as it gets. Oh God, do, you, I, do you have, before, have any questions? We, oh, no, okay. I don't have any questions from our listeners. That's 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 that's, that's over. Can I read you some real uh, teams from the eighth tier of English football? Sure. <laughs> There's a town called McLover. <laughs> <laughs> if you had just said McLover, I would have been like, that's a great one, John. <laughs> <laughs> it's McLover Football Club in Derby. Or Derby. McLover FC. Oh, it might be uh, Mickleover, which is a real oh. disappointment. I might have misread it. <laughs> All right, Hank, okay. before we descend into a full hour of discussing fictional English place <laughs> names, here's a question from Hannah who writes, Dear John and Hank, is it socially acceptable to practice the banjo in my dorm room? There is no stated rule against playing the banjo in my dorm room, but I do not <laughs> want to have a conversation about it if any of my dorm neighbors hear me and get annoyed. I can't ask the RA... Because I am the RA. Great oh, wow. twist. Uh-huh. Yeah. If I shouldn't play the banjo in my dorm room, where should I play it? <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's the better question. Spelled backwards, <laughs> Hannah. Um, boy, Hannah, first of all, you I feel like you should know the answer to this question. I always assumed that RAs knew about I, I feel all like proper they, dorm room behavior. Yeah, they behavior. knew everything. There was no higher authority. Second, I didn't understand your question initially because, of course, no, you cannot play banjo in your dorm room unless your roommate isn't there. But it appears that having become an RA, you've got you a, have single, a single, which sounds And in lovely. that case, I, first off, I think you can play the banjo yes. if your roommate is there as long as they are playing the harmonica. That's yeah, that's the, the only. Yep, that's the that's the only way you can play a banjo in a room with a person who is who is not like actually paying to watch you. Yeah. So that's I, the, they have to they have to also be playing a harmonica or a washboard. I don't, I don't have direct experience of having neighbors play the banjo, although I love banjo music, so I think I would yeah. be happy. Uh-huh. But when I lived in New York City, we lived directly. I, I've probably talked about this before because it had a huge impact on my life. We lived directly beneath a professional opera singer. Yes. And when you're a professional opera singer, you have to sing every day. Like, that's how you, you gotta maintain. Do, you got to do your job. Yeah. It's like being a, you know, like, it's like being a writer. You got to write. Uh-huh. And so she had to opera sing. And at first I was like, man, this is super annoying because this person really goes <laughs> through the scales. Loud. You know, yeah. it's like uh-huh. five, five or six octaves several times a day and uh-huh. booming. I mean, no microphone for this opera singer. This is a voice made for the Roman Colosseum. And, uh, but then I slowly grew to really love it. So what I'm wondering is if Hannah's neighbors yeah, might, be, might, might become banjo fans through the process. 
I think you can't expect it, but you also have to recognize that, like, we live in a society. And one time I was in a hotel room and my neighbor did call hotel security to tell me to stop practicing the questions that I was about to ask the president of the United States. <laughs> um, so we, we're all we're all in our moments. And, and it yeah. probably is good to 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 do it until you're told that it might cause a problem but the uh, thing is like if you're in a position or, of authority then yeah, people don't feel like they can come They're to you gonna. and say like i don't love yeah. this banjo playing yeah well don't do it in the middle of the night um but look yeah. if you have a good but the question where is a better place to play the banjo is a great right one, because of course i think the best place to play the banjo is in the holler <laughs> Does your I'm not sure where that holler. is. Yeah. I'm not sure where you can find one, but that is where you got to play the banjo. Alternately, if it doesn't have a holler, is there some kind of veil that you might be able to visit? I think a veil is just a holler, but like a fancy one. And if there is no veil or holler, can you at least go down by the river? Yeah. If you can go down by the river or even a pond, like yeah. everybody's going to look over at that and be like, well, that makes sense. There's nothing about that 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 seems weird, honestly. It's it's odd that there wasn't a person playing a banjo there before. Exactly. This river valley was incomplete pre-banjo. Yeah. Uh-huh. I just read a history of the Orthodox Church. You know Caspar Terkyle of uh, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text and lots of other mm-hmm. things? Yeah. He did this thing this year where he read a book every couple weeks with a different person. And and the book that we picked was this history of the Orthodox Church, which was a a book I never, ever would have read if it hadn't been for this two-person book club. Of which which Orthodox Church? Like, well, funny you should ask. That is itself a whole hullabaloo that, believe you me, I'm not looking to get into. But the, (laughs) (laughs) the, the Orthodox tradition that is... Uh, today present in Russia and Romania and and Greece and other places as as separate from what the book calls the Latin Church or the Roman Catholic Church. Anyway, that's not the point. The point is that while reading this book, I learned that in the Orthodox tradition, there were valleys that would contain hermits, like monks who were hermits. And if they were really good hermits who were really popular and seen as really holy and sacred, there wow, would be, be other a popular hermit. Yeah, you could be a popular hermit. This is a different time. Whereas now, I guess you could still be a popular hermit. Just ask JD Challenger. Sure. So, yeah. what would happen is that other hermitages would pop up in the same valley. It would almost be like a community of hermits would develop because they were all inspired <laughs> by this one great hermit. And I just, I thought that was lovely. Well, is, are they hermits anymore or are they just a bunch of buds now? That, exactly. And so that made me think, if you start playing your banjo in the holler, maybe mm-hmm. lesser banjo players will come with you. And then <laughs> you will be a, a community of banjo players and no longer uh-huh. will you be alone, Hannah, in your banjo playing. Yeah. you'll And you'll be, now you'll be in a band that's called the Sleepy Holler Hannah Banjo Band. <laughs> I think actually it would be known, Hank, as uh, Broadtooth FC and the Bluegrass Boys. <laughs> oh, no. We're back. We're back. We're back. I wasn't, I wasn't going to let it go. I, I, I require a callback. 
Okay. John, this uh, question I think is for you. It's from Tahani who asks, Dear Hank and John, I recently went to New York City for the first time, which has been a dream trip for me for a long time. One of the biggest items on my to-do list was to visit the Museum of Modern Art, where Starry Night by Van Gogh is on display. Now, I've been to the National Archives in D.C. before, so I've seen the amount of security that a significant physical piece of history can receive. So imagine my surprise when I was just able to casually waltz up to the Starry Night painting that is everyone's default favorite painting. Obviously, there were cameras somewhere in the room, but there weren't any guards, no barriers, not even a written notice not to touch it. How is this allowed? How am I, a random teenager, just able to be near it without supervision? How has no one ruined it by now? Is it even the original? Are the art people lying to us? (laughs) Concerned about the culture? Tahani. This is a great question. Yeah. And I love the I love the kind of conspiratorial thinking of like, is this even this, is this it? This is this really this seems it? wrong? If I can spit on the starry night, this must not be the starry night. It is just a and starry indeed, night. You, you, you can't spit on it oh, for the record. Okay. But yeah, so there are a bunch of things at, at work here, and it's a really interesting question. Because when I look at Starry Night. My thought is also, this doesn't really look like Starry Night. Mm. Now, when I've gone to MoMA to see Starry Night, it was always pre-pandemic. So you weren't looking at the painting so much as you were looking at other people looking at the painting, Mm -hmm. like as is the case for most really famous paintings in really crowded museums. But it was a similar experience in the sense that it's, as I recall, it was not roped off there were no visible security guards and it did feel like you were there with the painting yeah. or all these That's people nice. were there with the painting. Yeah. And now because of the pandemic, you you have like timed entry and MoMA is much less crowded and you probably can sit alone with Starry Night for a little bit, which is a really cool experience. Or I guess I should say would be a really cool experience, except for the thing that Kind of, kind of bums it out for me, which is that, Tahani, you may not have been able to, to notice this because the glass is very, very, very clear, but there is glass. Ah. It's called museum glass. And it I know for a fact it's over Starry Night. It's over most of the most valuable paintings sure. in most museums because they're almost impossible to ensure otherwise. Right, because you don't want somebody to just go up there with a car key and be like, ha-ha! Yeah, or to spit on it yeah, for that matter. Right, right. And and so this museum glass, which is which is really clear and it's really obviously it's really good glass, but it is glass. And for for me, what makes Van Gogh and uh, by the way, we're saying Van Gogh and I know I know, we know. Dutch people. We know. We know. We know. We're just not doing it we are who because we are. I mean, we can't pronounce anything. <laughs> we certainly can't pronounce Van Gogh. So for me, like what makes those paintings so extraordinary is the brushwork and the texture to the painting. Mm-hmm. And under museum glass, it really does flatten it out a lot. Like it flattens your visual per- perception of it a lot. And so I think that's maybe why in that moment Tahani felt like, is this even the original? Mm-hmm. Because it does feel more poster-like. When it's under than glass, yeah when it's under glass than like a normal Van Gogh painting would. Right. Even in that same room, there are Van Gogh paintings that aren't under glass where you're like, wow. Interesting. That brushwork is really weird and 
has some real texture to it and and you don't see that as much when you look at Starry Night, although it is an incredible, I mean, obviously, <laughs> probably the most pa- famous painting of the last 200 years is good painting. I don't want to take anything away from it. But it does it, it, it does suffer a little for me under the glass. Yeah. And, and obviously it has to have the glass because you got to protect the painting and also you have to insure the painting. Right, right. And one of the sad things about humanity is that we all kind of know what would probably happen eventually if it weren't protected. Yeah, you know, somebody wants to or somebody's. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and like, is that a sad thing about humanity or is it just like there are outliers and that is a that is a part of how humanity has to be. And so like we and, and and like the weird thing is that we have to. We have to choose certain paintings to be these icons. And, you know, Starry right. Night is very good, um, but it's kind of it suffers is. from being an icon, which is true of actual human icons as well. You know, we we, we have to center, as, you know, members of a culture, we center our attention on certain things. And that uh, that is sometimes to the detriment of the thing. Yeah, like when you look at that painting... It's very hard to see that painting as anything other than this iconic painting Mm -hmm. that's very famous. And so part of what you're feeling when you look at it is, oh, my gosh, this is the famous thing in the flesh, or at least like insofar as I'll ever see it in the flesh. And then you turn around and in the same room, there's another Van Gogh painting or a painting by another artist that isn't under glass, that isn't famous. And maybe because it isn't famous, it's able to move you or it's able to connect with you in a way that this image, because it's been so repeated in your mind, just can't. Mm -hmm. And I've always felt like there's something to me quite sad about that. But you're right. Like, it's an inevitable feature of as you put it earlier, living in a society. I've never heard somebody say unironically, we live in a society. But it's, <laughs> we, do. we do. I mean, I think that I I think that all the time. I'm like, oh, why is this hard? Because we live in a society. I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 Things are hard. No, no, no. I, I yeah. agree. It's just like it's a meme yeah. to say we live in a society. Yeah. I'm used to the meme. In fact, that phrase has become iconic in my mind so much that I'm I, I struggle to uh engage with it without that level of irony right. inside my mind. Yeah. But of course we do live in a society and that is the root of the meme. <laughs> where they come from. All right, Hank, we got another question from Laura who writes, Dear John and Hank, I recently moved to my grandparents' home to help take care of my 90-year-old grandmother and the house that she and my grandpa have lived in for the last 40 years. They've held on to a lot of things over the years and I've been working on decluttering and cleaning things up. They have tons of books that no one in our family wants anymore, but I'm also pretty sure no one else in the world would want them. <laughs> Plus, there are some religious books that I would rather not go into circulation, to be honest. My question is... What do we do with old books that no one wants? I don't want to give them to Goodwill if they'll just be a burden to Goodwill, but I also am not sure that I am ready to go so far as book burning. What do we do? I don't have a quirky sign-off, Laura. Oh, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on this, but but I will say that there's a there's a wide gulf of difference between burning a book and throwing one away. Lots of books get recycled. Yeah. And that's a very different vibe than like, we must celebrate the destruction of this book in a party time atmosphere where we all say down with the ideas and, and these are thoughts that should never have existed in the world. And, uh, uh, that, and, and we, we are celebrating the destruction of, of these thoughts, which is, oof. 
Yeah, exactly. Like, there's nothing wrong with throwing throwing a book away. I will say, though, that there's a pretty good chance that somebody does want a lot of these those books. books. Yeah. And that somebody may really, really want them. Yeah. I'll give you an example. My great uncle, my great great uncle, my grandfather's brother, yeah. also Hank's grandfather's brother, <laughs> wrote a novel in like 1932. And this was always part of our family lore growing up that my great uncle had written this novel and it had been a big issue in their hometown and yada, 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 but that the book was out of print and nobody had a copy and nobody knew where you could ever find a copy. And then I found a copy. Yeah, because the internet happened and, and you could start to search and, for stuff. Yeah, that said, I, I, I still think there are only two or three copies mm. of, of the book in the world. Wow. So so it may be so it may be that there is somebody out there who really wants that book mm-hmm. and and doesn't know and maybe giving it to Goodwill is a good a reasonably good way of doing that because I don't I don't know I don't know how Goodwill do, works but like they may check it against a database to say yeah. are there people asking for this book maybe going to a used bookstore could do the same thing. I don't I don't know the exact right way to deal with it, but like I agree that there's nothing wrong with throwing away books, but there might be an audience for that book that has nothing to do with the content of the book, but instead it's like a personal connection or right. it's a book that they remember from childhood or I who knows, I don't know. Right. Yeah, I think that like what the main thing is like you shouldn't become a rare book dealer suddenly because you're in charge of some of <laughs> <Right>. your grandparents' <laughs> uh, belongings. What you should potentially do is look into somebody who who could give them a once over and knows the space well enough yeah. to know what what yeah. is a book that like there's a thousand copies of it out there and nobody wants them. And what is a book that actually might have somebody somewhere who really is missing this from their life? Yeah. 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 And there's a lot of ways to do that. I mean, yeah. so that, that's that's what I would do if it were me. But I do think that we are a little precious about books, sometimes physical books in ways that we aren't precious about other Physical goods. Yes, well, that we, get we all consumed. have to read Fahrenheit 451 when we're in middle high school. So we get we get we got yeah. that in our heads that this is a well. No, I think it's, I, I think it is appropriate to be afraid of exactly the kind of book burning that you refer to. Yeah, but it's interesting because people also don't really throw away records. In my experience, there's something mm-hmm. about physical. You're right. Yeah, art mm-hmm. that it's really hard to throw away. Like. I do not want to throw away any, any of the art that Sarah made, even the stuff that she made right. in high school. And she's uh-huh. like, it's fine to throw this away. I made it in high school. I don't, I don't yeah. like it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like, would you, do you want to keep around the copies of like Rosenthal Square that you wrote when you were in <laughs> high school? I had forgotten that that was the title of that story, Rosenthal Square. It's so weird that that book, that that story was called uh-huh. Rosenthal Square. And then I became very good friends with somebody named Amy Krauss Rosenthal. That is such a that is such an Amy Krauss Rosenthal detail. Like yeah. she would love that coincidence. Mm-hmm. She would love that. I, I must um, have mentioned that to her at some point, I hope. Well, I'm, uh, the good news is, John, that's not on the internet, so no one can go find it. Because you sounded uh, like you didn't I, want me to say the words. I Well, so <laughs> the backstory there, this is a story I wrote when I was in high school, and I liked it. It came in third place in my high school's like story <laughs> contest. Yeah. But first place went to 
Daniel Alarcon, who went on to become a very, very <laughs> successful. He just won a MacArthur Genius Grant. <laughs> so, uh, so weird. It was a weird moment in high school. <laughs> I didn't know it at the time, but like first place shouldn't have even counted. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you got second. And so place I have, I have fond memories of that story because it was really the first story that I completed, and it was, mm-hmm. you know, the first story that I that I wrote for fun, you know, that wasn't for an assignment or anything. And Mm -hmm. I recently reread it and I was like, it's not great. It's not as good (laughs) as I remember. (laughs) I'm surprised you had it handy to read. Dad found it. Oh yeah, of course. I liked it. I was like, wow, John is my brother. My older brother is amazing. He is so cool. Well, it, it, to read it now, you're like, boy, was this guy in love with Kurt Vonnegut. <laughs> and it just reads sort of like a sort of echo yeah. shadow mm-hmm. of right. the kind of Vonnegut sense of humor mm-hmm. where it it reads like I had good taste, but not yet good execution. Sure. Well, and that's a lot of that's a lot of. Uh early people's work. Um, and also, like, it's it's hard when you read a lot of somebody who has a really powerful voice to get outside of that frame. Um, yeah, and I think yeah. maybe it's helpful to be imitative when oh, you're of course. A, a young writer or musician or artist or, or whatever. Yeah, any, because, yeah. because part of it is learning what you like yeah. about what you like. Mm-hmm. For sure. Well, John, this podcast as it happens, is actually brought to you by Rosenthal Square, John Green, what's it called, Juvenalia, um, that you cannot and should not get. (laughs) Emphasis on the juvenile and juvenalia. (laughs) And of course, this podcast is also brought to you by Banjo in the Holler, the new album by the Sleepy Holler Hannah Banjo Band. This podcast is also brought to you by Nipple Switchdown FC. Nipple Switchdown FC playing, of just, they just pulled Manchester United in the F- FC Cup. It's huge for them. <laughs> the FC Cup. That's amazing. <laughs> Never change. Never learn. Never learn. <laughs> I wonder if it would be completely out of place to create merch for one of these phys- fictional <laughs> soccer teams. But anyway, we're moving on. The bonus Today's- podcast isn't coming out. We don't know what it's coming say, out. It's all wasted on a bonus episode anyway. <laughs> this this unmitigated gold is <laughs> just going to be on a random Monday when one of us has COVID or something. <laughs> also, this podcast is brought to you by Living in a Society. Living in a Society. It's not just an ironic statement. It is also a fact. It's really real. It's so real. Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, there will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year 
for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius, because there will be a world without us. So we all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on, but there are two things that you shouldn't compromise on. One is name brand Dr. Pepper. The off-brand stuff just doesn't hit the same. And another is, of course, your health. So don't go back to that one doctor who uses your appointment to catch up on the latest headlines or their family group chat or the crossword puzzles just because they're available right now or take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. And you can search by location, availability, and insurance. So literally, no compromises here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. You can filter specifically for ones who take your insurance, are located near you, and treat basically any condition you're searching for. And the typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is between 24 and 72 hours. So go to ZocDoc.com slash DearHank and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C.com slash DearHank. ZocDoc.com slash Dear Hank. So, we John, this Google, next question comes... Google nipple switch down oh. and make sure it's not a real place before we... It's not. Go. I already did. Oh, great. It okay. sounded so real. I looked it up. It... <laughs> <laughs> this, this next question comes from Caitlin, who asks, Dear Hank and John, this question is from my husband, who introduced it by saying, I have a question for those green boys. Mm. <laughs> I thought it would only be polite to pass it on. Uh, why does gum stick to everything except my teeth? Hmm. Do you know why, John? I would assume because your teeth are kind of wet. Yeah, it's because they're the wet. They're they're all just like all the rest of your bones. They're wet. Oh no! Not don't say that. Don't tell me the rest of my bones are wet. Oh no! <laughs> no God! Oh God! Are you telling <laughs> me that if I was chewing what? gum with my ulna, it, <laughs> it wouldn't stick to my ulna? <laughs> Yeah, it's a wet ulna. Oh, God. Also, oh, also it, oh, I can it, feel it might all my stick. bones. I can feel every one of them. <laughs> They're all inside of me. They, your teeth are also very oh, God. hard and have very... So they're not porous at all. So there's nothing for the gum to like sort of get into. That's one of the things that that like, but gum will regardless stick to a very hard, non-porous, dry surface. And they would, gum would stick to your teeth if you dry them out first. And you can dry your teeth out. Uh, it doesn't not not something you want to do like permanently or anything, but it doesn't hurt them to dry them out. Just sort of stick them out there and breathe on them a bunch. You just blow a hair dryer into your mouth and stick some gum to them. That'll absolutely work. How can you still be talking after revealing that all my bones are wet? It's a meme, John. It's a whole thing. I've this, never heard people the have meme. already been through the, the process that you're going through. Right I've now. never I've never heard this before. This is deeply upset. I cannot tell you the extent to which I am feeling the existence of my bones, which mm-hmm. I have never felt before. I am having a physical, an intense physical reaction yeah. to that news. I am aware of having a pelvis. 
I feel my finger <sighs> bones. I didn't like that. You did make you did remind me about my pelvis, and it made I have me all of these. I I have all of these bones that are that are holding me together. <clears throat> this podcast is brought to you by Wet Skeletons. <laughs> is Red Skeleton's brother? <laughs> that got me uh, out. That got me out. That pulled me right out. I'm good now. I'm good. You know that guy's uh, name the, is not really Red Skeleton, right? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Good, yeah, good. That's that's key. That's key to being able to enjoy the joke. Oh, that pulled me right out. Thank you. All right, let's move on quickly. This this question comes from Andrew who writes, Dear John and Hank, I am someone who doesn't go to bars very often, but I always see someone on TV shouting, the next round is on me. Is that a real thing? Is the next round a predetermined amount and type of alcohol? What happens? <laughs> Andrew. This is gold. I like the idea that you shout, the next round's on me, but you can only, <laughs> only get Coors Light. Only tequila shots. <laughs> no, that's too much. No, well, something, something. But you can Tito's, say that. Only Tito's. You can say yeah. that. You can say shots sure, yeah. on me for the whole bar. Uh-huh. And then everybody yep. in the bar gets a tequila shot and you have to pay for X number yeah, of, tequila of tequila shots. shots. So Andrew, uh-huh. there's a couple things to remember. One is that I would... I would say most times somebody says the next round's on me, they are at a bar with between three and five people. Right. And they are not getting it for the whole bar. Or they're at a bar that only contains three to five people. Which is, uh, in, Which is in a fact, lot of bars. often the case. Yeah. yeah, for a lot of bars. I have said the next round's on me once in my life. Mm. and That's like cool, Andrew, John. That's pretty cool. That makes me feel like you're pretty cool. Thank you. Like Andrew, I did not fully understand the commitment that I was making. Uh, okay. I had seen something on TV and I thought, I'm feeling good. I've had an amazing day. The next round is on me. And goodness gracious, that that was an expensive announcement. You skipped the most important part. Did they, at the, at the moment that you said this, did everyone go, hey! It was a fairly significant A. Because my my, horrible fear would be I'd be like, next round's on me. And everybody would be like, cool, cool. And they'd just sort of walk up quietly to the bar and be like, ah, that guy, what a sucker. (laughs) I feel like, I I don't know the bartender experience of this, but I feel like it'd be kind of a bummer for the bartender because they've got to decide like what constitutes the next round. When is the round round over, yeah. Has has this, am I sure that this person has only had one drink in this so-called round. Right. And then and like, also, there's the whole the person, like, tipping issue. Is the person who said next round on me actually good for this? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> they, sure. So I would argue, take on that responsibility with care. It is not a predetermined type of alcohol usually. So you don't know what you're buying when right. you announce next rounds on me. Next rounds on and, me, but only cheap beers. Like, gotta go to the well, friends. <laughs> I'm not getting you a Long Island iced tea with top shelf liquors. PBR for the whole family. I love that you think the nicest mixed drink is a Long it's Island not, iced it's tea. It's the most expensive never one. Change. It has like six shots in it. Oh God, never change. It's just expensive. I'm not saying it's nice. I love Long Islands. <laughs> don't. I, I, I genuinely don't think anyone has said the sentence, I love Long Island iced teas 
in 10 years. I think it has been, <laughs> I think the so last good. time it was uttered was 2011. <laughs> nobody, and I mean nobody, <laughs> likes a Long Island iced tea. <laughs> I do. I think they're very good. I like, I like them a lot. They're amazing. Wow. I just looked up how many beers a Long Island iced tea is equivalent to. It's not good. Yeah. Four beers. Oh, that's all? That's a lot of beers, Hank. No, I know. you. I can't drink them. If I had four I beers, had I would have a Island significant Probably headache. since 2011. Oh, my God. Before that, I bet. All right. Let's move on. This is Hank, Hank and John are too old to... <laughs> next round's on me, and by next round, I mean I'm the only person here. And I, and, and round is boba tea. <laughs> nice. All right, Nick, before we get to the all-important but not time-sensitive news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon, here's a question from G who writes, Dear John and Hank, but mostly Hank, I'm getting a little offended here. <laughs> <laughs> how slash why do booster shots work? Does our immune system just forget how to recognize certain pathogens after some amount of time? G. Um, Gee, our immune system is amazing and complicated, and we do not understand all of how it works. What we so so a lot of this isn't like um, how does this work? It's it does work, right? Uh, and that is that's a lot of how we unfortunately like it'd be nice if we understood all of the sort of amazing variables of our immune system. But uh, but but what we can do is study really. Effectively, especially in a circumstance where we have a lot of people who are sick and a lot of people getting vaccines, we can study the efficacy of those vaccines and how it changes over time. And once you do that, you start to say, ah, maybe we need to do um, additional shots, whereas for some diseases, you don't need to do additional shots. Now, why this is, we don't know, especially because there are multiple ways that our body um, remembers, basically, different pathogens. So there are, you know, the so there are there are like antibodies which can stick around for a certain amount of time, but do tend to wane, but then are always present in some amount. But sometimes that level is higher than other times. There are also like these cells themselves that can remember and uh, and, and become like specific to the pathogen, and they replicate themselves and and remain there all all of the time. Do they hang out um, in in like certain parts of your body? Uh, do we have a good way of testing whether or not they're there? Not really. So we can we just do studies to see how long the immunity to a disease lasts, and then you sort of bump up the the immunity. And and oftentimes what happens is with a second shot, you get sort of a lasting immunity where your body the first time is like, oh, this is a disease, and I probably won't see it again. But if it sees it again, it's like, oh, this is one that I'm going to have to watch out for for a long time. How the mechanism of how that works is very complicated. People know some things about it, but we don't sort of have the full story. If you're interested, though, I really recommend Philip Detmer's book, Immune, which talks about a, in a lot more detail the yeah. ways that vaccines work and why some vaccines are multi-dose, in addition to being a really fascinating introduction to the immune system, which I have to say... I. I knew something about, but I had no sense of the astonishing complexity and really beauty yeah. of mm. the human immune system. 
So yeah, I mean, it's the idea that we have a class of cells that are responsible for killing other cells, and and but like their biggest job isn't just to kill the bad the bad folk; it's to not kill the body, right? Which is a difficult thing to do. Like, how does it tell us apart? Yep, very hard. It's pretty amazing. It's a great book, Uh, and if you don't know who Philip is, he's the founder and head writer of the YouTube channel Kurtzgazat, which you've probably seen and is one of our favorite educational YouTube channels. So it's just, it's just a really great book. I loved it. Let's move on to the news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon. Hank, I'll go first. AFC Wimbledon have, have done something really cool that makes me really happy, which is that they have re-signed one of my favorite youth players whose name is Egli Kaja. And so Egli Kaja was a really promising youth player for Wimbledon and it often happens that really promising youth players like just don't get a foothold in the game for a variety of reasons, just like any other career. And after going on loan a couple times and then ending up at Northampton Town, which only sounds fictional, he was out of the game for a little while and then re-signed for Wimbledon quite recently. Of course, our current manager, Mark Robinson, coached him when he was a little kid. And so it's really, it's really great to have him back at the club. He's, I I just, I'm rooting so much for him. Uh, He has been at Wimbledon since he was like 10 years old and he's just a great kid. Well, I should say now a great young man. And I'm really (laughs) excited that he's back with the team. What's the, what's, what's, what's the evergreen news from Mars? I've been trying so hard. Mars is so good. It's a good Brock. <laughs> I feel like almost all the news from Mars is evergreen news from Mars. It is. Yeah, it is, <laughs> I guess. And news from Mars, John. So you know how we have heard that uh, the crater that the Perseverance rover is in uh, is an ancient lake bed that was a long-term uh, old lake where lots of layers of sediment got laid down over an, uh, over a very long period of time, potentially, you know, millions or even tens or hundreds of millions of years. Yes. Well, a group of scientists, and I can't tell you where they're from because I'm doing this off the top of my head, uh, d- <laughs> uh, have, have proposed a counterclaim, mm. a potential other way that these layers could have been formed. And oftentimes this is, this can be sort of pitched by the, the scientific press as like, ah, we were wrong, or maybe we were wrong. But like, really what it is, is it's saying, this is one way, uh, a a long period of time, a a, a lake existing on the surface of Mars is one way this could have happened. Another way is like a series of many years of rainstorms followed by the evaporation of the lake um, over and over and over again. But it would have been more sort of like a puddle vibe where the lake wouldn't have been a long lasting lake. It would have been puddles for, you know, puddle, 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 puddle. It fills, um, it empties, it fills, it empties, it fills, it empties. And that's just sort of like, like, so the the clearest, most basic explanation would be this was a lake bed, but there are other ways that this that at least the layers that we're looking at right now could be explained. And there and as we look deeper at the layers, there are even some clues that might lead us to believe that it, it would have been more of a transient 
uh, water type place. Mm. Now that's still liquid water sticking around and probably still just subsurface a lot of liquid water sticking around for a long time. Like it might've been kind of a muddy place. Um, but uh, what do we know? It was billions of years ago. So uh, we will continue to do to do the research and we will have a lot better idea once we just get our little feet there and get to poke around with our own, with our own human pokers. Um, so... <laughs> That's maybe in, not the best way to say that. In 2028 or later. <laughs> in 2028 or later. In 2027 or sooner. Um, and uh, so that's, you You could probably, with that information I just gave you, look up the story, which I read and then couldn't find. <laughs> so I, I won it. <laughs> well, Hank, thank you for potting with me. Thanks to everybody for listening. I hope that you're having a nice season. What? <laughs> <laughs> we are as well up the what a great season it is up the broad tooths up the broad tooths this podcast is edited by joseph tuna Medish. it's produced by rosiana hals rojas our communications coordinator is julia bloom our editorial assistant is to bookie trucker the music you're hearing now and at the beginning of the podcast is by the great gonorola and as they say in our hometown don't, don't forget, forget to be awesome, awesome.